0: Hello and welcome to Genre Stop, the podcast where we read and review genre fiction. You're here with Brie, a lover of all things fantastical, and Scott, a skeptic of all things speculative, spec-scamp, as I like to call it. No. No? Today, we're going to talk about a book called The Old Assassin's Apprentice. It's a dying apprenticeship these days. (laughs) It's by Robin Hobb.
1: Or, throwback to the Goblin Emperor, I've been calling her Robin Goblin.
0: <laughs> Robin Goblin. I call her Bobby Hob. There's a lot to talk about here. Hopefully we touch on some of it. Why don't you give us a little introduction?
1: Alright, this week for the show we read Robin Hobb's 1995 book, Assassin's Apprentice. Uh, it's the first installment in the Farseer trilogy. Our protagonist is the young Fitz, a royal bastard who will grow up to become... A stable hand, an assassin, and above all, a dog lover. Remember the dog lover thing, because it's big and we'll be coming back to it every couple seconds in the show, I assume. But I'm getting ahead of myself. We meet Fitz when he's six years old and being dropped off at a prince's stronghold by his pauper grandfather, who reveals that the boy is the illegitimate son of Prince Chivalry. When the prince hears of his living shame, he abdicates his throne, of course, and retires from public life with his wife, Lady Patience. Young Fitz is left to be raised by the former soldier-turned-royal-stable-hand, Burek.
0: (laughs) Burek? (laughs) I thought... Okay. What's Burek up to? Burek. Oh, okay.
1: Fitz grows up at court helping Burek with the animals, which works out really well, because Fitz happens to possess the WIT. The WIT, capital W, is the controversial ability to share consciousness with animals. Burke tries repeatedly to prevent Fitz's animal bonding as he thinks it's morally perverse. (laughs) When Fitz hits puberty, King Shrewd, his grandfather, takes an interest in him. I'm
0: sensing a theme here. We have a shrewd uh, prince chivalry. The name, you
1: figured it out already? (laughs)
0: Lady Patience.
1: Yeah, that's crazy. (laughs) It's weird. Yeah, so King Shrew decides Fitz is going to receive secret training in political assassination. Or is that what you call it if it's actual assassination? I feel like political assassination means that you ruin someone's reputation. But if you do that <laughs> and kill them
0: Well, he is training him to write like really damning blog posts
1: <laughs>
0: about all these people.
1: Not really. It's actual assassin assassin assassinations for political purposes.
0: Most are. Very few cultural assassinations. Look,
1: political assassination is a really difficult term. This is our first Coons on, on what political assassination means. There'll be more. Okay, so Fitz has nightly lessons with the wise, hideous master, Chade, who teaches who?
0: him...
1: I'm going to call him Chade. Teaches him the assassin's arts. So poison, memorization, observation, sex with Chade. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. The last part happens entirely off the page. So, meanwhile, Fitz is also being taught the skill, capital S, a magical ability that allows people to communicate telepathically and influence others through vague mind control. His teacher in the skill, Galen, hates Fitz because he's a bastard. While he's a harsh taskmaster with all his students, he's abusive towards Fitz and ultimately shatters his confidence in his skill abilities. Skillity. So, after about 200 pages of these lessons, and he quits the skill only to use it really successfully later during a critical scene in the climax. That climax, no speaking one of, yeah, right, <laughs> comes in the form of Fitz's first official assassin assignation.
0: His first assassination assignation.
1: Assignation. So he's sent there uh, to this foreign kingdom to kill a foreign prince. Uh, but it goes really badly when his evil uncle, Prince Regal, <laughs> mucks it up and tries to kill Fitz in a bathtub. Don't worry, though, a dog saves him. (laughs) So that's pretty much it, apart from an adolescent crush on a cute abused girl from the village beside the castle. (laughs) As for the book's thematic concerns, I'm kind of at a loss. Sacrifice, maybe? The consuming nature of talent? (laughs) But not really. Uh, It's mostly about dogs. (laughs) I can't wait to hear your thoughts on your favorite book we've done. So first, I want to hit home... (coughs) You're part of the royal family that gets special magic naming thing. What's your name? Now, to explain a little bit more, Scott mentioned, yeah, we have King Shrewd, the prince's chivalry, regal, and... What's it, Veracity? What's his name? Verity. And then we have, well, Fitz chivalry, obviously. Yeah, anyway, Lady Grace, Lady Patience. For some reason, it's pretty classist. Royal... Pretty
0: classist.
1: All the nobility... The
0: talk of blood in the book and bloodlines... It's enough to fill a fucking Nazi eugenicist handbook. Uh,
1: Yeah, so the story of a boy and his dog.
0: I just didn't think uh, that Shadow and Chance would would make it all the way back to your family.
1: (laughs) So the naming thing. Noble families, when their children are born, they receive special binding magic with their names. So you name them after virtues you want them to have. Now, this is a little weird because not everyone is named like King Perfect. Or, like, King Genius, even although these virtues do work. Like, they like whatever the person is named, they kind of are. So, Scott, I want to know about yours.
0: Yeah, it was really strange they chose Prince Gonorrhea for, <laughs> for that one guy. Well,
1: actually, I did think it was weird. Why would anyone name their daughter Lady Desire? I mean, she dies of a drug overdose.
0: <laughs> oh, the crackhead?
1: Yeah, the crackhead queen.
0: Uh, yeah, it's... I, okay.
1: It's just crazy. Lady you Desire. You don't
0: know how de- Desire is going to manifest itself. They are get, being way too ambiguous. They need to be like, Lady beats the outriders. <laughs> lady really secures the borders. <laughs> Prince Regal, we crown him. How's that going to work out? Who knows?
1: Yeah, yeah, And then Regal is Regal, but he's also really vain and petty and stuff.
0: Mm. Who would have thought? Well, the worst fucking part, maybe you would, you know, I'm thinking of the author... You would do this and then you'd like complicate it, right? Like they don't actually embody their names 100%, but they 100% embody their names.
1: And one of the characters is named Prince Chivalry.
0: You know what he is? Turns out he's chivalrous. <laughs> Who would have thought? So you're asking for my name?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Prince done with this fucking book. <laughs> it's just, I, I, think, I, think, I think the podcast is over.
1: This book felt long, right?
0: Well, it depends how much you skim.
1: Ah, You gotta stop skimming.
0: Jesus, I can't.
1: But if you'd really stayed in there, all right, we're putting aside Dragon Lair, the first book that we stopped, (laughs) then this one, this was the writing in this one was the worst. I mean, it wasn't just the ideas or the plotting, the writing was bad, right?
0: Here's the hard thing with this. I mean, like, as we research and try and do things with books like this, right? Fantasy and maybe even sci-fi, I don't know. When I'm trying to like figure out what book we're gonna read next. They're so predicated upon like series, right? We're not gonna read like book four in a series, but at the same time, like most series that are popular, the first book is like also this person's first hand at writing something.
1: She has those shit books that are popular too.
0: <laughs> well. I and when I when I suggested we do this based on like, hey, this looks like something, it's time for a fantasy one, because... You know, Hobgoblin was doing something, like, Hob different. And this one seemed like it was like, hey, this, this will put a smack dab in the middle of Fantasyland. So why not? So we had two options with this author.
1: Okay, I wanted to do this one, too, but for a little bit more of a personal reason. Um, you
0: slept with Robin Hobbs.
1: <laughs> well, he's still sleeping with Robin. It should be quiet, Robin. I was on an airplane.
0: Do you remember the flight number? And
1: across from me... Um, it's that missing flight. What, I didn't, <laughs> what's it called?
0: I was, I was kind of surprised about how blasé you were about it. You didn't even, like, I tried to give you updates about it. And I'm like, you're about to get on this flight. You're like, oh, whatever.
1: Yeah, but the, here's the thing. And this is why nobody can talk about it. Because something really magical happened on that flight. I was sitting there and across from me was a young couple. These two people, they weren't young, like, they weren't children. They were, I don't know, they were young adults.
0: Oh, I was about to ask how old they were. <laughs> yeah. Because if they were... Do you want to know their body type? (laughs) Well, if they were like under 12 and together in like a sexual way, I would have like shut that down. So thank you for letting (laughs) me know that this young couple wasn't like inappropriately young.
1: Okay. They were so in love with each other. The whole flight, the plane was dark, a red (laughs) eye. (laughs) And they had their light on, but I was just watching them. And I was mesmerized. They had one book, and it was a Robin Hobb book. Although I you know, I had to really spy on them to figure that out. And they were taking turns reading it to each other while they were leaning in and their foreheads were touching, and they were just so happy, so in love, so doing this. I looked over. I was actually being creepy the whole time staring at them. Um, I might have taken a picture, but I looked over and the book had like a I think it was a ship book, it had like a
0: boat. Wait, let's see how you put these clues together. What was on the cover?
1: Anyway, I saw that. And I thought, I want that, you know? And then I thought about my life like and all the things I don't have. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I decided I have to read Robin Hobb. But now, after finishing this, I feel like they're not as trustworthy as their, like, earth-tone clothing and Wiccan jewelry <laughs> made them seem to me. Because this book was, I thought, pretty bad.
0: <laughs> it's funny to think of them reading passages to each other. Was one of the passages this one? Which... <laughs> Which I flagged as the representative. Well, it's the representative dog passage. So is this
1: page two nineteen?
0: Oh, so close, two twenty two. It might have been a lot about dogs. I think I dogs. marked this one too. Okay, well, I thought I should just read this to give a sense of the writing. We can talk about the writing a little bit more after this because I have. I think there are actually like narrative and structural issues that so we too. could talk about yeah. as well. Yeah, I feel kind of bad. Maybe I'll t- there was one line that I actually really liked. I might as well say this before I read a whole paragraph about dogs. It was about when it got cold, and it said. Winter had harvested us and stored us in the great hall. I liked it.
1: Yeah, that's all right. I liked like three lines. One, well, I liked the phrase, a parasol of shark skin that the fool <laughs> apparently was found in. I also liked a line that said, I memorized it, so I'll know for the rest of my life. It was a perfect example of good food abused in the name of good cooking. And I liked the food abuse internal rhyme. Mm-hmm. There was a third one I liked. Oh, yeah. There was a description. It was probably an erotic description given the dog shit, but it was, uh, it referred to a speckled bitch pup. And I felt like that's a great, that's, that's great. a great phrase.
0: Speaking of speckled bitch pups, here we go. When I say quest, that means he's trying to get into the dog's <laughs> head. I forgot yeah, about, about quest. questing.
1: Questing uh, toward the dog. Did you not imagine his penis just reaching <laughs> toward the dog?
0: It's so true. Okay. My instinctive response to his high-pitched yeet, yee ye <laughs> had been to quest out to him with calm. His mother, the his is here, is referring to a dog. His mother had sensed my contact and approved... She settled back into her basket with a white pup with blithe unconcern. The puppy looked up at me and met my eyes directly. This, in my experience, was rather unusual. Most dogs avoided prolonged direct eye contact. (laughs) (laughs) But also unusual was his awareness. I knew from surreptitious experiments in the stable that most puppies don't suck dick voluntarily. (laughs) Oh, I'm sorry. I knew from surreptitious experiments in the stable that most puppies his age had little more than fuzzy self-awareness and were mostly turned to mother and milk and immediate needs. This little fellow had a solidly established identity within himself and a deep interest in all that was going on around him. He liked Lacey, who fed him bits of meat, and he was wary of patience, not because she was cruel, but because she stumbled over him and kept putting him back in the basket each time he laboriously clambered out. He thought I smelled very exciting, and the sense of horses and birds and other dogs were like colors in his mind. Images of things that as yet had no shape or reality for him, but that he nonetheless found fascinating. This has gone on insanely long, right?
1: I mean, yeah, the...
0: It's not done yet. I imagined the sense for him, and he climbed on my chest, wriggling, sniffing, licking me in his excitement. Take me. Show me. Take me. A paragraph does it really about dogs? say "Take
1: me, show me, take me"? Yeah, of course. That it does. has to be the paragraph I marked. It's all sexual. Next to it in my notes, I said "bestiality."
0: <laughs> I can't believe that was.
1: The amount of puppies. How, how that did wriggled, you not skim this? I, I can't really skim.
0: Okay, here's a bigger. Okay, I want to hear what you think about the writing.
1: This was unusual to me. I thought, I thought there was a really frustrated use of first person in it. Mm-hmm. Like she thought that because she was narrating through a first person. She could never jump for it even a day. I mean, the amount of times we saw him fucking hungry, and not like hungry in a way that like he's starving or he's fucking Patrick Rothfuss and Tarbean. Oh, no.
0: Well, this like, is there. Ha, there is a Tarbean equivalent here. Yeah, there is a Tarbean we'll journey get to that. Buckkeep. But it's <laughs> I basically, remember it's Buckkeep. It's basically, the same place. Tarbean, Buckkeep. Come on. Okay. They, they're in this. They're like next to each other. But
1: that's the thing. Like this isn't even like oh he's on the street so he's hungry. This is like. Three times a day in this book. And we spend every day with him. He's hungry. We go through every meal with him and how he wants it. And then we hear every night when he gets tired. And we just, she, she can never skip forward. She thinks that we have to follow his every move. And it ended with me feeling really stuck, the mm. whole book. Stuck in the paragraph, stuck in the scene. And completely tethered to this character who I thought was uninteresting oh. and kind of callow. And oh. I didn't like him.
0: That nicely captures what I felt in a way like I, I couldn't get out of this perspective and I didn't want to be here especially when the here was a s- eight-year-old boy yeah, yeah yeah I don't want to be viewing this world yeah kind of in general but I don't want to be de- viewing it in the mind of an eight-year-old
1: But this is a hard thing about the fact that, and I've said before, like, I like series, I don't mind a series. You know, we're obviously going to be doing the first books of series. And if each one is the childhood book, like, I don't like childhood. I'm not interested in it.
0: Mm. I kind of hate Bildungsroman, right? I don't want the story of a person's life. Mm -hmm. And so many of these, you're exactly right, seem like they feel they need to take us through the stations of the cross on this person's fucking adolescence. So what do we do? Is that just a trope of fantasy that you can't get away from? That they are going to be this heavily invested in a person's tween years?
1: I mean, maybe, but then you would hope that that some will just do it better. Because I feel like this book, the only thing that carried me through any of it, and I really wasn't carried through much of it, but during the scenes that did, it was just boilerplate fantasy stuff that kept me there. Like, good soldiers slopping up stew with bread. I mean, the other... It had a lot of things that I felt like were hallmark fantasy. It had a character named Cobb. It had, like, a ton of spiced wine.
0: Is that... Is it true?
1: Well, I feel like every book we've read has had spiced wine in it.
0: In Sight, when the aliens were like, try this spiced wine.
1: Also, it had people who inexplicably talk to themselves aloud, that happened so much, I thought she was kidding
0: well not even that I mean that's that overlaps with what was fr- frustrating me is these like insane info dumps in conversations where I mean the first thirty pages burr <laughs> Burrich would tell this six year old like in the context of saying "Sleep here, stable boy, all about the politics <laughs> yeah, of the yeah. world. And it was even kind of stranger, too, because apparently the frame for this, which could work, was an older Fitz, like, having this long autobiographical digression while he's ostensibly trying to write a history of the realm. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah, exactly like you said, like, there's no need for him not to be able to allude to the next day. And Fitz is a horrible historian. Did you notice that the first part, like... Before each chapter, there's a little epigram, kind of that's supposed to be something from like the bigger history's writing. Before he's talking about his own life, and so some they give us like a like a background on the kings of the realm, or like some f- customs, or how the duchies became duchies. And so halfway through, I'm thinking like, okay, this is these are excerpts from the actual histories writing, and then eventually those epigrams start to collapse into the narrative itself, and, like, the epigrams become, like, and then Fitz came and he met Galen. Like, (laughs) wait, wait, wait. The first two chapters were about these kings, and now you're (laughs) actually just writing about yourself in the whole fucking thing, which is crazy.
1: Yeah, I mean, those got so off base that I forgot that those epigrams were even that old man writing. I just thought, like... An an italicized paragraph at the beginning.
0: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. No, no, that was him. Like, he's just writing the very first sentence, a history of the six duchies is of necessity a history of its ruling family. And then, a hundred pages later, apparently from this history again, a history of the duchies is a study of their geography. Is it a fucking study of the family's, <laughs> the ruling family's history or a study of the geography? Not I love I that that's your
1: problem. You've already put more thought into it than Robin Hobb.
0: What's she, she
1: didn't reread her writing.
0: <laughs> she do not <laughs> This gets back to, okay, the main problem, which is we have to read series. I guess we can't start in the third one. Yeah. I don't know. But that's also me assuming a lot that the third one's going to be any better.
1: Yeah, you are thinking like the third book's so good in this. Another thing apart from the frame that is bizarrely dropped after one brilliant moment by the author is dialect. There was one word of dialect in this book. It was on about page seven, and then it never happened again. So this is like a high-level Robin Hobb quiz question, Scott. And the word was bastard, and it was spelled B-A-S-T-I-D. T-I-D. Bastard. Bastard. Hey but it never happened again well, did this character have a speech impediment it was like an off character it was just so sloppy of her
0: she finishes she's like ah, i could revise these first chapters there's no need
1: i didn't have any really provocative questions about this book other than the wriggling bitch pups but <laughs> there's one question this book made me think about that i wanted to see all right so another general fantasy thing is a mentor like uh, as since a mentor is like a, a conduit to the protagonist to the adult world or to the specialized world of their knowledge yes. do you think that mentor is meant to conceal right. the horror of the world to the character and kind of eke it out in bits or are they meant to introduce them to the horror of the world?
0: They're uh, meant to inject it directly into their anus. <laughs> He had a variety of competing pederast mentors.
1: No, because here's what I was thinking. Like, this book, even with Chade, who was teaching him how to kill people, there was this constant babying.
0: (laughs) That's so funny. I wrote down exactly at one point, wait, did Chade just rock him like a child?
1: (laughs) (laughs) It was crazy. And it just happened the whole time. And then the other mentor wasn't really, he wasn't even teaching him. He was attacking him.
0: So So the, The mentor manatee relationship is, is
1: <laughs> Okay, I know, it's difficult. silly, but it did make me want... But then, okay, I think I was listening to a podcast the other day. I forget what it was. I think it was like a self-help podcast. I'm, I'm sure you did. <laughs> so this must have been like an hour ago. <laughs> and it was talking about dark teachers in life. And mm. I wish that occasionally, like a fantasy book, would have a mentor who is a dark teacher and who does violence to the character and thus initiates them into something.
0: Well, I mean...
1: That's asking a lot of Robin Hobb, but...
0: To Robin Hobb's credit, I think in a sense she thinks she's complicating that mentor role here with... I'll say Shade. <laughs> because Shade's teaching him a morally ambiguous thing that he's not questioning. And saying, I'm teaching you how to assassinate people. You don't need to think of whether it's right or wrong. You're in service of the king, and that's your job. I, you know, I think there was supposed to be a level of ambiguity that... I mean, maybe you know, our expectations for the genre have changed. And so that grayness has been diluted in the 25 years since this was written. That's a good point
1: because I do think she thinks she's doing that, but it's almost like because she knows she's writing about something that is morally ambiguous, she has to, like, every time Chade teaches him about, like, a simple plant or a poison or something, then there's this paragraph about, like, Chade like sitting back and looking at him with like a pained expression on his face but then it goes away and the boy doesn't know what it means and like obviously Chade is like oh you're a little child and I'm teaching you to kill Right. so that it never actually felt like like a bold teacher of the dark arts I just want a dark teacher in my own life (laughs) do you know anyone who can teach me how to hurt people?
0: yeah I mean I feel like Maybe that's a, you're wanting a different book than we read. I don't... I
1: know. But, well, except that I just think it's something to think about with mentors, and I think we're going to read many more books with mentors. If you think mentors are done, Scott, you're wrong. Well,
0: that's what I ultimately wanted to get out of this podcast, like a a reservoir of advice for mentors.
1: Oh, I thought you wanted <laughs> to get an actual mentor, and that's why in the show notes every time you put that little ad up.
0: <laughs> right. If so anyone has any interest... You know, whippings allowed.
1: Willing. Willing Willing.
0: boy. (laughs) (laughs) It's not dark if you're willing.
1: That's true. Unwilling boy would be actually get more hits. Okay, um, we should talk about the forged people. Forged people are are those zombie people. So
0: this is the one allusion we have to, like you said, the big bad of the book, right? This is the external theme that's not like a part of domestic duchy politics that's Mm -hmm. going to be obviously... Whatever Fitz is grappling with when he's 50.
1: Let me Uh, explain it a little more in detail. So these raiders, like Viking raiders, they come, they pillage a city, they rape a few girls and they leave. But now they're coming and they're taking all the villagers from a city and then they're sending the king special notices and they're saying, um, you have two options. First option, we'll kill all these people but we'll only do that if you give us money. If not, we'll do option number 2, mystery door. <laughs> and so the king is obviously like I'm not giving what? you money. Yeah, yeah.
0: That doesn't make any sense. Yeah,
1: I don't want you to kill people. Um but then they send all the people back and they the people have basically lost their consciousness or their humanity. They now just scavenge and rob people for money and like fight with their kids to get like food from the kids. <laughs> well,
0: okay. Well, first Forged didn't seem that bad to me.
1: Exactly. <laughs> <Wait>. <laughs> I would way rather be forged than killed. Are you kidding? <laughs> Forge me tonight. I mean, because in the end, like people are actually like as soon as their like forged toddler comes back, they're killing the toddler to like free them from this burden. But like, stop killing your kid. <laughs> <At laughs> He's <once, laughs> just hungry.
0: At one point she goes down like a huge litany of like all of the horrible things that these forged peoples have been doing and how it's just like the <laughs> the worst thing. And she says, the tales from sheepmire that's a town, were the most told ones. Some cursed and fought and spat at their own kin. Others settled into a life of bondage and idleness, eating the food and drinking the ale set before them, but offering no words of thanks or affection. (laughs) Okay, so this is like the worst unimaginable, worse than death.
1: Either pay us money to kill them, or we'll send them back selfish. So the Forge thing was ridiculous, and the fact that those are going to be the terrible spellcasters of the series.
0: The Forge thing was ridiculous, also my favorite part of the book. I mean, what else did I have to cling on to? Did I want to hear three pages about what's happening in the stable? Because they were there. I blame you, and I want you to account for yourself. You knew what fantasy was, and this seemed like that it's doing what fantasy books do. What? so like, I what? mean, I think that
1: kind of gets back to our discussion. Yes, this hits all the fantasy marks, but it's like dull, bad writing, and it's not inventive. And it's, I mean, it's like this is a bad fantasy. To me, this is a bad fantasy book. Let's not let Robin Hobgoblin <laughs> make us forget the original Hobgoblin, Maya, <laughs> who we love.
0: Okay, so here's the question then. This is, you know, 20 years older than Hobgoblin. Is it that any time we go back in time to read a fantasy book, this is what we'll get? That there aren't older fantasies that will do something that we find interesting?
1: I mean, uh, no, I do think there are older fantasies that'll do something we find interesting, but that's also a fun challenge for us. Is it fun? (laughs) It's not fair that whenever we read a book you think is bad, you indict the entire genre, or whenever we read one, the whole
0: writing establishment.
1: <laughs> but if it's good, then you we praise this particular author Writing's for perfect. a specific triumph
0: yeah, i I mean, you're right and like to give it credit, the last hundred pages the plot completely changes. the tone I thought completely changed it was its own separate book. I was way more into what happened at the end than anything that had came before. so I thought like maybe if this is you mean the book. when
1: he's sent on his final mission,
0: yeah, you weren't into that.
1: Uh it no, it, it registered the same way as all of it to me.
0: Fitz is there. He's been mucking around with this guy. The guy says, Oh, you can like talk to animals, he talks to animals forever. Then he gets sent to deal with Galen. Galen's the name of like, you know, a Greco Roman doctor and really <laughs> important there. Galen who hates him for being a bastard. A hundred pages of like getting abused, going on this mission, and then he fails. But then the next thing's like, okay, now go do this assassination. Those are very separate to me. And then he goes, and like, I I thought there was a little bounce in that. Like, you you know, the kind of whatever intrigue was happening there, at least I was more interested in it. Maybe just because it was, is it just because that was like an adult adventure? I hate picker stuff anyway. But even that was more interesting. I
1: mean, it probably was that. He is like 14 by that time. (laughs) So anyway, yeah, the ending segment, maybe it was that it was an adult thing. I had lost all interest in the book by that point and it was like a physical pain kind of to keep reading it and i just knew i had to right but this seems like a good time for a segment segment sound
0: segment sound world time
1: uh would you want to live here scott
0: yeah <laughs> that's the
1: funniest answer
0: <laughs> definitely
1: that's just a yes right
0: in on my camel buck keep Head on to the stable.
1: Okay, so it's a sure no. Stab
0: right? Fitz in the face before he could write this history later in his life.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: Did you know? I bet you didn't know about Fitz as like a term for bastard. I
1: I did not. You that. did?
0: What did you know about it?
1: Fitzwilliam.
0: What about Fitzwilliam? It means like bastard of William. Smart one.
1: Mr. Huber in tenth grade taught me right after he taught me about bartering.
0: And before he taught you, a do you know that things. barter is just is this? Trade? Where you got your dark mentor from? <laughs> I know it's like a template that no one's ever been able to match.
1: I think he died of AIDS. He either died of AIDS, a wonderful man who had us watch the entire Pride and Prejudice BBC miniseries in class,
0: or he moved to Alabama,
1: or it was a vicious rumor spread about a month after I graduated
0: by Teddy. <laughs> you always hated Mister Huber, probably for giving you AIDS.
1: There actually was someone named Teddy in my class, so it's weird that you say that.
0: Are you serious?
1: Yeah. Can you link to my high school graduation (laughs) picture?
0: I'll put it in the show notes.
1: I like how this episode, we're bringing up show notes.
0: (laughs) Bree's the one staring at Mr. Huber.
1: (laughs) Okay, I wouldn't want to live in this world because it's so boring and doesn't even matter. And I guess, all right, the magic is the wit and the skill. So we should talk about what you think about the magic because for me, kind of like your shit at the end... I um.
0: I think you should apologize to our listeners for your foul, foul mouth these last couple I'm of episodes. I'm still reeling
1: from Agyar. Oof. I listened to some of Agyar and I really got away with myself. For me, I guess for moments of it, descriptions of the skill and not the wit because the wit...
0: Because Again, to differentiate for people, wit is the one where someone can go in a dog's head. <laughs> yeah. And skill is what you can make... A, you can, like, implant impressions in people's head about and what to just, do. And just,
1: yeah, and communicate. So for a lot of it, descriptions of the skill were my favorite part just because it was such a relief from the terrible historical fiction I was reading mm. that I just needed something magic. But... The skill actually turned out to be the stupidest thing ever because all the skill did in the climax was do exactly what a telephone would do. (laughs) Like, all the characters were about to die. They just had to get this one piece of information to Prince Verity. And, I mean, (laughs) really, it seemed so anxiety-inducing, but then I was like, wait, he's really just trying to call him and say, like, hey, like, Regal misrepresented himself. And that was it, and that was the whole thing. Do you remember when the dog (laughs) saved him at the end? (laughs)
0: The dog saved his life a couple times. No,
1: that was the last line of the book. Because we knew that he was saved. We thought he was drowning when last we met him. And then all of a sudden we're back and everything's good. And the last line of the book was like, and I remember it was Nosy, the very sexual name of one dog. Smithy. No, it was Nosy. (laughs) Remember, he finds out that Nosy was alive. Burick, Burick, Burick.
0: How many dogs does Robin Hobb have? Oh my God. Or maybe you jumped all over me in Agyar for projecting from the writing onto the author, but I couldn't resist it here again. Fitz is just about to meet Lady Patience, the coolest girl in all the land.
1: I was about to say, Lady Patience is pretty cool.
0: Pretty cool. Well, he's meeting her, and Lady Patience deigns to talk to him about her cool tats.
1: <laughs> she does have tattoos.
0: <laughs> wait, wait. Here's, do, you, do, you know what kind of, do you remember what kind of tattoo she has?
1: I remember being like... Feeling like I wanted her to like me.
0: <laughs> well. But without the least qualm, Lady Patience let me observe and finally assist with the slow pricking of dye into her own ankle and calf that became before my eyes a coiled garland of flowers. <laughs> a big <like>, flowery <laughs> ankle tattoo? Robin Hub so has a flower tattoo around her ankles. and It's
1: roses. That- that's a good point. I will say Lady Patience was the one bright spot of the book for me. She was an eccentric, fragile, botanist tattoo artist who <laughs> <laughs> like was weird and scattered and seemed really sexy. And the tattooing thing, now that I think of it, the reason it was so out of place, you're totally right, is because Robin Hobbit just gotten her second tattoo. <laughs> but it at least surprised me into thinking like, okay, this isn't 100% a medieval world. Right, right. Or like the noble women are tattooing themselves.
0: What's uh, What's up with these? Like the nineties isn't that far not that far away. What's up with this weird classist and or like royalist obsession in this? I mean, this verges on actually like eugen. Like I think the implication is well, apart from the names we have, only you know the royal bloodline can get these names. Mm-hmm. Maintaining that royal bloodline is really important here. A lot of times there's talk of blood, you know, like oh you have the skill it goes with the blood. The wit and skill are actually something, like, is predominantly a royal trait.
1: I agree, except, I mean, she would say, even the or Not she, I don't know, maybe she wouldn't say anything. Does she have a tongue? I don't even know her. But... That's
0: why she took to writing so much. I
1: think that... (laughs) That's funny. The defenses in the book for that, but this in itself is, like, patronizing and terrible. But that, again and again, until, like, it made me shudder whenever it happened, the innate goodness and simple intelligence of the common man was stated every time he was in the kitchen with the soldiers. At one point, he says, like, now that I've sat at the table with princes, I see that the best wisdom about the, what's going on in the realm is actually had in the kitchen at the soldiers' table. And Molly, his girl. Molly Nosebleed.
0: <laughs> that is her name. She
1: is obviously supposed to have some kind of stature or poise, and she's common, Right. So, I mean, there are common characters, but at the same time, I agree with you. It does seem like everything special about Fitz is about the fact that he's half royal.
0: Not even half. I don't know if you caught it. But, like, I mean, it goes back to that strange, like, inability to let his mom be a fucking peasant. When he's talking with someone about, like, his paternity... I mean again this makes this makes the Goblin emperor's really subtle like allusions to an industrial world and like lower class discontent that much more skillful. Burge is talking to him about his mom, and he says, "Well, I doubt very much that your father would have actually laid down beside a woman that was a scrub without some fineness, some spirit, some sign of spirit or intelligence he wouldn't have." He could not have.
1: Wait, what year is this? <laughs> Had Scrub come out yet?
0: <laughs> well, Prince Chivalry wanted no Scrub. I can't do it. <laughs> yeah. Like, they can't even make his mom an actual, like, just milkmaid right like she's gotta have something deeper to her Well, yeah
1: and that's that whole reveal that chivalry actually didn't like abandon him and decide never to see him but that chivalry was the most chivalrous person on the face of the planet and had decided not to see him because he thought it would endanger his life to see him so chivalry obviously wouldn't have laid with any scrub (laughs) chivalry would have been with like the I don't know, tribal princess or whatever she he's, was. I'm he's sure like she was that's like a hill god. He's
0: like she's the kind that can't get no love from me, hanging out the passenger side of her best friend's carriage.
1: Be honest, did you just remember the lyrics to "Scrub"? They never like, went away. <laughs> no, I think you wanted to remember it a second ago, and you didn't hear what I just said. And in your mind, you're like lyrics to
0: "Scrub." That class elements just strange. I, I guess I know it's a trope here. It's also because it's trying to resemble, like, a medieval world and whatever royalty is important to people.
1: Like, done at its dumbest. Done at its dumbest. The whole appeal of, like, and then you find out you're a queen or and then you find out you're a princess or he finds out he's, like, a royal bastard. At the dumbest, that's and then you find out that, like, your blood is special and not, you know, like, Maya. And then you find out that, like, you have, like, Complex responsibilities that will change your person.
0: Wisdom bridge.
1: Don't. bring The one moment. The (laughs) one bad note. All
0: right. Well, maybe we should move on to cringe factor. Cringe cringe land. Before we do
1: that, I wanted to bring up one thing. About nine million pages into the book, when it was finally revealed that Verity, Prince Verity, was 33 years old, were you like, what the fuck?
0: Which one's Verity.
1: Was she nineteen when she wrote this? That she thinks thirty-three. Verity's the prince who's literally an old man, st- stooped over in his chair, trying to z- mentally skill the
0: forged ones away. Well, she
1: said he's thirty-three. What are you talking about? I she he's like palsied.
0: Well, no, no, no. The skill's taking a lot out of him.
1: Not that much. Oh,
0: this this whole.
1: I've skilled before. The cringe factor for this is a little hard for me because because I had two different copies of this book. Mm. One copy was, I think, the copy you have as well. You can discuss that copy. For me, the cringe factor on that copy is a five. <laughs> so why don't you go ahead and describe that one?
0: The cover, it's like a Rothko painting, geometric shapes. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Just
0: kidding. It says Assassin's Apprentice. Tough enough. Although, this might be a, re- a recurring segment. Bree likes to... You know, just to make her point, say these are just allusions to, like, ambiance of the book. No, this one's very clearly three characters from the book. It um, had a, pe-
1: a pederast, a young boy, and a dog.
0: <laughs> it's Shade holding a candle that's gone out, a boy kneeling at his feet. Leaning
1: into his groin. Uh, Don't Obviously being words. pushed
0: into his groin, <laughs> and the boy's, like, petting Shadow from Homeward Bound. <laughs> Also, I mean, like, this is so obvious these people from the book. Remember there's, like, a weasel? There's a weasel in this dude's, like...
1: It's a ferret. studio. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. It is. And it is, like, a a squirming penis symbol throughout all of their interactions.
0: <laughs> this is true. Do you um, remember how
1: heartsick he is when Chade is mad at him? He can't get out of bed? Whatever. Okay, that's oh, a yeah, certain yeah. thing.
0: Well, the, okay, here's the thing. We are... We're talking about little weird things, ticks in the writing... And even by talking about the plot in a way, we're getting it—it's not to be mean, but too much credit because this thing is held together on some very, very frayed threads, narratively, structurally. It's—it's—it's—it seemed like kind of a mess. There's not even in like the abstract world of just like thinking about shit. Maybe this forged stuff sounds interesting, but it's not. Just like you'll notice little things reading it. it so many times it just drove me crazy four pages about, like, what this might mean at the very beginning that chivalry has a bastard for, like, the succession and then a line at the end, like, and then chivalry abdicated, whatever, who cares? All of this info dumping in in the context of conversations. The plot itself isn't laid out logically or consistently, like I said this point.
1: No, I agree. I think it was plotting and dull and didn't have one moment of, like, clarity or teeth or anything that like pushed me into like a vision of what's happening in this right now. Okay, so for this cover...
0: I'm actually not as upset about this cover as you are. I'm giving it a 4 out of 5 instead of a 5 out of 5. I
1: actually... Now that I think of it, I am going to give it a 4 out of 5 because the 5 out of 5 books, and I'm sure we'll read some, but they are ones that try to be a little better than this and fail. Mm, Yeah. This one is obviously humiliating. (laughs) 4 out of 5. The other... A copy that I have of this I got from the library, and it's a little better in that it's just a picture of a ship and there are two little figures Why in the corner Why are ships on this? Uh, that doesn't matter. The point is like, I'll take a ship for the cover of any book. So that one I would actually put at like a a two, because it it still says Assassin's Apprentice, so I can't give it a one. So it's it fluctuates between four and two, depending on your cover. So Run out to the bookstore and get Robin Hobb's <laughs> Assassin's Apprentice.
0: We have to do our, move on to our ratings. How many forged villagers do you give this?
1: I give this book three forged villagers. Three? Uh, because I finished this book about two weeks ago. I haven't thought about it once since. When I we finish this, I'm never gonna think about it again, except every time I see a dog.
0: What accounts for those girls? For that couple on the plane?
1: I mean, they're strangers, so like, I don't even know what they're into.
0: You felt pretty into them, though. I mean, you felt like you thought you'd made a connection. I mean,
1: I guess I have to say that maybe this Ship series of hers, which I've heard is good, maybe it's different. I don't agree, but I think what accounts for them is that sometimes people love each other, and it doesn't mean that they have good taste in fantasy books.
0: I disagree. It just means no that they love, love each other.
1: other. You didn't see this girl. She had boobs. How many Keras seeds? Did you give this book
0: what is that Kerosene's is that, is that the crazy the, drug of this book the, okay what lady desire was all desired out on
1: fucking keros out all the time
0: this this book i had trouble with i think ultimately that i still don't know how to read these books a lot of that might have to do with this the is what i was saying earlier tone. though
1: unless you like them and then you know how to read No,
0: them. no 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 because i think even yeah. in the book that we liked there was a Bildungsroman aspect to...
1: Books? We liked books. No, 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 no,
0: no. I'm saying to Hobgoblin. Okay, yeah. And you're you're collapsing sci-fi and fantasy in a way that I don't think works.
1: Like the way that our podcast does?
0: Right. Well, I'm saying, yes, exactly. Um, or their tropes aren't similar.
1: Okay, that's a good point.
0: Narratively. But even in, like, good fantasy, right, or whatever, like, that we've read that we liked, you know, like, here's a kid, here's his family. So anyway, what's difficult to me is that I'm sometimes thrown out of sorts by this mishmash of theme and my expectations and what it means to me, you know, without it coming out and saying it, I read this and think 80% of the time, this is a YA book, right? Just because it's like, it's my own fault. This is dealing with an eight year old, meaning it's YA (laughs) or like it's themes. It's obviously like this mentor stuff, but then it talks about like, you know, like, Oh, here's, here's the crackhead queen. or assassination, whatever that. And I have a hard time reconciling the supposedly dark bits with what I think is, like, in presentation and writing, very much like this is a book that 10-year-olds are going to read. We both liked Hobgoblin. A strong vein of, not mine, but your argument in that whole thing was, is this YA? So that's my whole point, is that even in the books we like, there's still something that says YA to me that I can't get away from. So I give this, I give this to Hobgoblins.
1: All right, so that's our show. He gave it a two, I gave it a three. To be honest, I think he would have given it a three too. But he wanted to be lower than me, bizarrely.
0: Tune in next week when we read A Stranger in Alondria by Sophia Samatar.
1: Samatar?
0: More like scimitar. By
1: more like scimitar. Centaur.
0: Oh, uh, race car.
1: Minotaur. Tar, the substance.
0: Librea tar pits. What? Librea pits. Dinosaur bones, LA. Jurassic Park.